Hey there. As I was starting to write the script for this episode, I got an email from Walmart. It said, your package has been delivered. And I went right downstairs to grab that thing. I did not want to risk some stupid porch pirate getting it. I opened the door. Oh boy. Got it inside. Let's see, is this what I hope it is? Took out my keys, ripped the box open, and yep. Yeah, that was a short-lived burst of joy. (laughs) Fuck. This is like... It's the shittiest thing that this is the most excited I've been about receiving a package for a really, really long time. Because you know what was inside that box? Ten little two-packs of COVID tests. Walmart sells them at cost, $14 a two-pack, which is like nine or ten bucks less than anywhere else when you can get them, which completely sucks because these are my family's key, not to living a normal life, but to doing some normal things like having dinner with my mom, who's 91, occasionally seeing a friend without a mask, without worrying we could be passing along COVID, especially with this super transmissible Omicron variant. That is no freaking joke. And even at seven bucks a pop, these tests are stupidly expensive. I mean, it's the holidays. I want to see a few people. Today on the show, why we want these tests and why they're so expensive and hard to find in the United States. Because guess what? It's not this way in other countries, and it didn't have to be this way here. But you know, on the upside, some people are definitely making a nice dollar this way. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like the challenge. So my job on this show is to take on one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you a show that's entertaining and empowering and useful. And I should say up front, parts of this episode, maybe a little on the angry side. There's stuff to be mad about. But I hope you'll stick with me for this first part. What these tests are, why we want more of them. I want you to know why they're important because I want you to celebrate and see people you love, and I want you to be safe. So give me a few minutes here, and then I can send you off to drink eggnog or hot chocolate or cocktails with funny names. I mean, of course, who am I to give you health advice? I'm not a doctor, that's for sure. So I called somebody who is. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and Bellevue Hospital, and I am the host of the Epidemic Podcast. Celine put out 80 episodes of that podcast about the COVID pandemic. Later, she advised the Biden transition team as they made their plans for fighting COVID. So yeah, she's a good person to help make sure I've got this straight. Okay, we're talking here about rapid antigen tests. The most common one you'll see is called Binax Now from Abbott. You get them at the drugstore, you swab yourself at home, get results at home in about 15 minutes. It's like a pregnancy test. The tests a lot of us are more familiar with are called PCR tests. That's when you go somewhere like a doctor's office and they swab you and ship the thing off to a lab. And if you're lucky, you might get results late the same day. And you may have heard PCR tests are more sensitive, which is true. They are. They're also overkill for our particular purpose, which is evaluating, is it safe for other people to be around me without a mask right now? I think this is something people still don't understand. Um, you know, I keep hearing people say, yeah, but PCR is more accurate. That's, that's the best test. That's what I want. And it really depends on what you're testing for or why you're testing. Like as a physician in a hospital, you want a test that tells you, hey, this patient with a severe respiratory infection, I'm treating them for COVID. Is that what I should be treating them for? 
that's when you want a really sensitive test. If that test comes back negative, then you know, nope, I do not need to treat this person for COVID. So in the clinical scenario, you're trying to rule out maybe you have COVID, maybe you have the flu, maybe you have bacterial pneumonia. And then I try to rule out and narrow your treatment accordingly. So if it takes a day or two to get results, no big. I am treating you already. I'm isolating you already. So the PCR test is a great diagnostic test. It guides treatment for somebody who's sick. A rapid test is a public health measure. The decisions you're making with a public health test are very different because what you're really trying to figure out is, is that person infectious, contagious to others right now? And so you really need that test result in the moment. And that is what the rapid antigen tests do. They don't tell you, for sure, dude, you have not been infected with COVID-19. If you're feeling crummy, you can cross out COVID as a cause. They do tell you, could you get somebody sick right now? Should you especially stay away from anybody who's vulnerable, who's older, like my mom, or immune compromised, or too young to get a vaccine, or whatever? And that's where that supposed you know, drop in sensitivity of the rapid test may actually work in your favor here because you're really only detecting the people who are contagious. PCR tests are not only too slow, they're basically too sensitive. You could have resolved your active infection but still have remnants of genetic material, so you're still testing PCR positive even though you're, at, you know, like there's no more infection there. So look, for example, the weekend before Thanksgiving, I went to a party. Everybody was supposed to be vaccinated. I got there early on. Very few people, great big room. Nobody wearing masks. I take mine off. An hour later, tons of people, people talking loudly to be heard in a big crowd. Not the same thing. Now, I'm vaccinated and I'm boosted, but it's not the same as total immunity. And the virus can take up residence in my nose for six days or more, even if the vaccines mean my immune system doesn't let it get farther. And Thanksgiving falls in that six day window. Can I go celebrate with my 91-year-old mom, with my cousin and his son who have type 1 diabetes, meaning weakened immune systems? I called doctor friends who were like, look, if you take a PCR test the day before Thanksgiving, maybe you'll have results in time for Thanksgiving. But guess what? In the day since you took that PCR test, you could be growing a viral load. You take an antigen test just before you leave for the party. You test negative, you should be pretty safe to be around for like four to eight hours. I ran that by Celine Gounder. I mean, I think that's a, a reasonable strategy. I think the, you know, it's it's hard to say exactly, is it four hours, is it eight hours, because everybody's a little bit different, right? Not everybody's going to have the exact same incubation period for the virus. So, you know, no sure thing, but that's what we did. We took antigen tests before heading to my cousin's house. Everybody did. We were all negative. We all had a great time, didn't worry too much. And my cousin made an amazing turkey, really good. And we're all okay. And that's what I want for you. So that's the main thing. This is me, your virtual Jewish mother, saying, Booby, get yourself some of these tests if you can. Except, of course, they're super expensive. I'm like racing down the stairs because Walmart delivered my $7 a pop tests here. And the story of why they're so expensive and hard to find is super interesting. We'll get into it in the second part of the show. But if you don't need that kind of pissed off energy as you're getting your holiday on, I'm like, yeah, go celebrate, bake cookies, enjoy. But two things. One. Stay safe out there, safe as you can. And two, of course, thank you for supporting this show. And please keep it coming. We've got so much ass-kicking to do in 2022. And we've got a special campaign going right now. The place to go is armandalegshow.com slash match. That's armandalegshow.com slash match. Okay, go celebrate. 
have fun, or stick around for the story of how the U.S. ended up being the place where these tests are hard to get and horribly expensive, and who's making bank because of it. That's right after this. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. KHN is not affiliated with the giant healthcare outfit Kaiser Permanente. We'll have a little more information about Kaiser Health News at the end of this episode. So, these rapid tests, they're expensive and sometimes just hard to even find. Here's one guy's story. I was trying to find tests because we had a grandparent visiting. Nobody was sick, just a due diligence thing. And I went to one, two, three, four local pharmacies and couldn't find any. And that guy, Eric Umansky, is an editor at ProPublica. So soon, he and his colleague, Lydia DePillis, were digging into this question, what gives? Why are these tests so expensive and why aren't there more of them? Because it's not this way in other places. The UK or Germany, many other European countries. Plus South Korea, Mexico, not just Europe. That's Lydia DePillis. She covers the federal government agencies for ProPublica. Lydia and Eric found there were two things other countries did that ours didn't. First, of course, other governments bought a lot of tests and just made them available for free. We'll get into whether that would have been expensive or whatever. But then the second thing that's far less obvious is that the governments there have approved far more tests. There's more competition. And so the Abbott test that's 23 bucks for two here sells for half as much in Europe. Well, yeah, I mean, Abbott will tell you that it this is a slightly different format, but chemically it is the same test. It would perform the same in a trial. The ones here we get are, are gold plated. Well, they're packaged with a lot more plastic. So that's why they cost <laughs> oh. more. That's what accounts for the big price difference. Yeah. More plastic. God bless America. <laughs> yeah, no. Abbott charges more here because they can because they don't have a lot of competition. Yeah, that was a really gobsmacking realization when the Abbott people on their earnings call. Welcome to Abbott's third quarter 2021 earnings conference call. And the analysts were like, wait a minute. Going back to testing, and that's a sequential step down. You say you're not going to make as much from COVID tests. Why is that? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're seeing more entrance to the market, so we're probably going to have to lower our prices a little bit. I baked in uh, some price pressure. But if we don't see those entrants, like, we definitely won't <laughs> lower our prices. And it was just out there. Yeah. So why doesn't Abbott have more competition? Because for a long time, the FDA only approved their tests and a very few others. And it's not like there weren't other folks out there with tests to authorize, tests that other countries found perfectly acceptable, like the UK. You had massive purchase to the tune of billions of pounds from an American company for a test that was never approved in the United States that the National Health Service bought in massive bulk. Yeah, this was a test the FDA didn't bother to approve, not rejected. The FDA just didn't seem to prioritize getting a lot of tests approved. The FDA said, hey, we only have so many people and a lot of priorities. But, you know, Lydia talked to an FDA reviewer who had been evaluating those tests, and he told her, I had a lot of free time. He was really frustrated that when he would make a decision on a test, it would go up the chain and then his higher ups wouldn't render a decision on it. So it would stay in the queue for months and months. He was so frustrated, he actually quit the agency. And here's the other thing. There were a couple of companies that got very fast track approval for their tests. And it looks a little weird because of who's at the top of the FDA food chain for this whole review process. A guy named Tim Stenzel. 
And Tim Stenzel used to work at Abbott, one of the companies that was approved, and at Quidel, the other company that was approved. And Eric is quick to say, hey, we don't know of any evidence there was untoward influence. What we do know is that Stenzel reached out to Quidel very early on and said, you guys should uh, create a test. I mean, they know that because Quidel's CEO said so in a video. The only reason they created a test at all, he calls it an assay, fancy term, is because they were asked. Got a call from somebody that I respect at the FDA who said, are you going to be developing assays? I said, I don't think so. And he said, would you? Because I think we're going to need it. And the FDA confirmed to ProPublica that Stenzel was that person calling from the FDA. Now, We asked the FDA about that, and they said, look, we reached out to a lot of people because we want tests. And then we said, well, that's great. We totally agree. Who else did you reach out to? And they said, we're limited by confidentiality. Um, We're not in a position to tell you. I'm telling you, it does look weird. But Lydia doesn't necessarily think it was nefarious, and she thinks it's not a bad thing for a regulator to have relationships in an industry. You would want your regulator in an emergency to use those relationships to make sure the tests are available. Like it's good in an emergency to have a regulator who can say, we need tests? I know a guy. It's just that maybe it's not so great for big companies to be able to say, the country needs tests. Big opportunity there. I know a guy. But Lydia says Stenzel did have a strategy here. It's just that executing on that strategy required authority his agency didn't have. Stenzel and his boss, Jeff Shuren, wrote publicly that, look, we don't actually think it's an effective use of our resources to be authorizing all these tests. We think we should have authorized like a handful of tests and then bought a shitload of them. And the problem is that didn't happen. Right. They weren't the ones who could authorize buying them. Right. So that might have been fine if they actually had the billions of dollars to buy them, but they didn't. So in the absence of that, it would have been nice to have more authorized. Yeah, here we're getting back to the other thing that this country didn't do, have the government actually buy tests. And that's part of why the tests are hard to find. I mean, over the summer, Abbott actually shut down a factory that was making these tests. They made that decision when lots of people were getting vaccinated and Delta hadn't quite emerged yet. Even at that time, there were public health experts from Tony Fauci to Rochelle Walensky saying, we still need tests. It still needs to be a part of our pandemic response. But the policy wasn't following through to make it so that companies saw it as worth their while to continue producing them. In other words, Abbott wasn't getting big orders from the U.S. government for tests. So they were getting hammered by investors saying, like, why are you going to produce a bunch of these tests if there's no market for them. And even now, the Biden administration does not seem too interested in the government actually distributing a lot of tests. That is putting it mildly. When Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, got asked recently, geez, why are these tests so rare and expensive here when that's not the case in other countries? She raised the idea of the government buying them here as something kind of ridiculous. Should we just send one to every American? Maybe. Then then what ha- then what happens if you if every American has one test? How much does that cost and then what happens after that? And I don't know, but I know two things. One, these tests can't be that expensive if you buy them in bulk. A reporter at Kaiser Health News talked to a biotech co-working lab that really wanted people to test before coming in, so they were importing them from Germany at a dollar 50 per. And then this As I was finishing this script, I heard from a friend who was out scouring the local pharmacies for these tests. And the local Dwayne Reed, where he was, wanted 50 bucks for a two-pack of Abbott tests, which is twice the going rate. Somebody there saw an opportunity. After a while, my friend found a place selling another brand for 18 bucks a two-pack. Limit, three per customer. 
mean, I told you this would make you mad, right? And now I'm telling you, get tests if you can, if you want to do normal type things. Get people you're doing normal type things with to take them just before seeing you if you can. And maybe lay kind of low for a while if you can. This Omicron wave is coming fast and you don't want to get caught in it. I'm sorry. Like a lot of things we report on in this show, this situation just totally blows and we just got to do the best we can. But then there's this. I cannot go another minute without saying thank you. (laughs) I've been asking you to support this show during our year-end Newsmatch campaign and you have been coming through in a big way. And some of you have also been sending the nicest notes. Holy crap, here's one. I'm so grateful to have found your show. I've been able to bookmark resources I didn't know existed, and more importantly, pass that info on to a friend who needs it right now. Thankfully, I haven't had any major fights yet, but now I feel much better armed to fight. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Holy moly, thank you. I share these notes with everybody who works on this show, and you could not be making us happier. And here's something else amazing. We have actually raised more money than Newsmatch will match, which means they've got a new challenge for us. Raise our own matching funds. They call it a community match. And if we do it, we get a reward. So if you can, I'd love for you to contribute. 5,000 is the target. We hit that, we get a $1,000 bonus from the Knight Foundation. If you're game to help us get that bonus and to match funds that others have already come forward with, you will be helping us in a big way. We've got some big projects we're aiming for in the next year, ways to bring this community together, ways to bring this information to more people. And the more support we can line up right now, the more we can count on doing in 2022. So if you're game to help, the place to go right now is armandalegshow.com slash match. That's armandalegshow.com slash match. Any support that comes in through that page goes to our new community matching fund. It matches other people's donations, which are still coming in, and goes toward earning that reward from the Knight Foundation. We can get there with your help. That's armandalegshow.com slash match. Thank you so much. We'll have a little bonus episode before the year's out, so I'll catch you soon. Till then, and, you know, for serious, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, with a lot of help from our producer, Emily Pisacreta, and edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for audience, and she edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. Our music is from Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America, an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, this guy, Henry J. Kaiser. And he had his hands in a lot of different stuff, like really different. He built a big chunk of the U.S. cargo fleet for World War II, made cars, including the Jeep, poured concrete, made aluminum foil. When he died more than 50 years ago, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast, and Tanya English is senior editor for broadcast innovation at Kaiser Health News. They are editorial liaisons to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative. That's a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. 
finally, thanks so much to everyone who's providing financial support to keep this show going. You absolutely rock. Here are some folks who've come aboard recently. Thanks this time to James West, Teresa Laurenti, Miriam Goldstein, Electra Allenton, Amanda Hendricks, Amanda Aquino, Devin McKay, Kyle Spansky, Patricia Tudong, Mitch Hobby, Elizabeth Gray, Kristen Heineman, Catherine M. Dunham, Susan King, Jeff McJunkin, Scott Gurian, John Wilson, Peggy Chopleski, John Wood, Chuck Lynn, Pamela Dodd, Amy Bins Calvi, Carlos Barrera, Peggy Whitmore, Travis Varegdenhill, Janice Benson, Perseverance Kajima, Monica E. Eng, Dawn, Rochelle Lapinen, Amy Schumann, and Carissa Marcello. Thank you so much.